Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 238. As always, Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell from the aforementioned Zone Radio studios. And good to have you with us this week. A couple of fine conversations for you with the frequent guests on both our radio show and on the podcast. Two very talented folks a little bit later on, actor, musician, voiceover artist, producer, Bill Moomy will talk with us about his brand new memoir, The Full Moomy. Up first, though, one of America's premier singer-songwriters, Roseanne Cash. Uh, doing a little bit of touring this fall, we caught up with her recently down in Austin, Texas, where she was getting ready for a show and talked about a wide range of topics, as we always do when Roseanne Cash pays a visit to downtown. I was looking back, it's been uh, just a little over two years since we talked to you, which is, is way too long. It was right before the election uh, last time when we were talking about to crawl into the promised land. And uh, wow, uh, a few things have happened in those last two years, huh? That, well, first, that went by really fast. Mm. I would have never guessed it was two years since I talked to you. Yeah, and a lot's happened. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think? Did we uh, do we save democracy or have we just delayed its demise? <laughs> <laughs> um, what a question. I want to take your poli-sci class, by the way, Rich. <laughs> um, I think we are in the process of saving it. There you go. All right. That's good. That's encouraging. I, I, I like that. Was I uh, being completely naive when I thought, and and I may even said to students speaking of that class, that I didn't imagine that the court would actually overturn Roe v. Wade and, and do some of the things that they've done? I never, I never really thought that too either. And, uh, I mean, it's a shocker, you know, we're now going to federalize women's bodies. <laughs> I mean, just think about that. This is uh, Taliban-style stuff. Well, but we have so many laws that regulate men's But Oh, wait, no, we don't. No, oh, wait, don't. yeah, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have enjoyed your work on Twitter for so many years, and, and as Elon takes it, down the drain. What's the future there? And, and what did it offer you? Well, every day now I go, eh, should I stay? Should I go? Mm. Um, you know, every time he posts something incredibly appalling, I go, I should leave. And then I see, you know, a lot of friends are still there. A lot of media people I still follow. Um, I don't know. It's what it's meant to what it meant to me in the beginning was like a cafe society is that you talked about really interesting things. I've met really interesting people. A couple of people I, I have, quote, met on Twitter have become actual IRL friends. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so and I have read the most interesting things and felt a connection. I mean, that still exists, but it's getting cloudy. Mm. And, you know, I think there's going to be a tipping point for me. 
I like something uh, you said in an interview not too long ago. Uh, you said, my political beliefs are empathy. <laughs> did I say that? You That's did. Pretty good. <laughs> I'll repeat that. <laughs> I've got to remember some of this stuff. <laughs> I, I like have the to, last time I talked to you. I have to tell you this. I, I was so blown away. Speaking of things you've said in interviews, I, I literally, I think I might have made a little gasp sound when I heard you talking about a, a song that has always been, if not my favorite, certainly in the top two or three, it's always meant so much to me. And the story you told about the only living boy in New York. Oh, yeah. That, um, well, it's Paul Simon, obviously. And that song, when I first met John, my husband, shortly after I met him in 1990, he gave me this mixtape on a cassette tape and Only Living Boy in New York was on there. And this thought went through my mind, I have to, I'm going to marry this guy. <laughs> hey, I would marry him. If he, if he put that on a mixtape for me, I'd marry him. <laughs> well, he had put on um, Paul Brady's uh, Arthur McBride and Paul Simon's Only Living Boy in New York. And I said, you know, I just thought my heart just melted. And... Um, so that, you know, I did marry him. I did marry him eventually. And I, a couple of years ago, you know, we, I had this little grandson who's now four. And when he was a baby, I played him Only Living Boy in New York. And he sat in his high chair with his eyes wide open and they filled with tears. And he was stopped still listening to this song. And I was overcome by this feeling of time circling back on itself. And, you know, the cellular makeup of what moves us, you know, that lineage and the connection of songs and the power of a single song to unite people was so powerful. Well, I, I love the story and, and that, that song. I, yeah, uh, I get it completely there. Your TED Talk, uh, Rhythm and Rhyme of Memory, was was so wonderful. And uh, what music touches us at, at such a fundamental level. And, and I love what you talked about in the fact that music is not bound by linear time. Yeah, well, exactly what I was just saying about Only Living Boy, uh, connecting my husband before I married him and my little tiny grandson. Yeah. And also, um, I mean, just literally going back to my Celtic ancestors and those melancholy melodies, you know, there seem to somehow reside in my bloodstream, but there's a language that music has that's not bound by time, you know, that speaks to us over centuries and generations and through our ancestry. I mean, this all sounds very grand, and but the things that are, aren't linear are the things that move me the most. Love, music. And when you're writing, obviously as a listener and as someone who appreciates music, you feel that in a certain way, but I have to think as a writer, uh, that just, that has to be very freeing too, that, uh, that suddenly past, future, present, they all come together in, in some sort of way that has to feel like magic when it's really working. 
Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, that's the mystery at the heart of songwriting or of any writing, I think. Um, and it's like Thornton Wilder said, you know, time isn't a river. It's actually, I can't remember the exact quote, but we step in and out of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's And I have found so many times in writing a song, one of your listeners is going to know the exact quote and call you up. And <laughs> when they do, will you please send me what the exact <laughs> quote is? Um, but I have found so many times in writing that, like I've said, they're like postcards from the future. You know, you do step out of linear time and reveal things to yourself about your own future. I, I want to talk about dreams a little bit. Um, you had talked with us, I think last time you were on, about the dream you had uh, involving Linda Ronstadt. You've written about the dream you had at 13 with your mother and your grandmother. And I think you wrote in your book that uh, you had read along the way that we, we have five big dreams in our life. Uh, have you had them all yet? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope. I don't want to check that last box for a while, Rich. Um, I mean, I didn't make that up. That's Carl Jung who said that a person has five big dreams in their life. Um, yeah, maybe I've had three or four Yikes. No, three's good. Let's call it three. Let's call it three. <laughs> what's your uh, what's your relationship with the road these days? You wrote a wonderful piece oh. in the midst of the pandemic about I, I don't know, would you would you call it a love hate relationship with with the road and touring? At this point, yeah. I mean, I love the audiences. I hate the travel. Um I'm just I'm, I'm tired of it. You know, I'm tired of dragging myself through airports mm -hmm. and, and um, hotel after hotel and not actually getting to stay in some place, but like just, you know, walking through a hotel in a venue in an airport, rinse and repeat. That's getting old to me and, and I'm getting old to it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But there's a, I mean, I, there's going to be a tipping point for this, too, because I love the audiences so much and the music and being part of that chemical reaction. But, you know, at some point, it's going to be too much. I actually am slowing down in the next year. I'm, I'm not booking anything after uh, June, and I'm going to see how it all feels. See Roseanne while you can. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying right now. Hey, this speaking of time passing quickly, 35 years since the release of King's Record Shop. I, I don't know how that time went by so quickly. Um, but did that album really begin a new direction for you? And you're not just recording, but writing. I, and I know that. I know from your book that the fact that you didn't have as many of your own songs on that album pushed you to write even more. You know, Rich, I think that rather than a beginning, that that was a culmination, that album. That was a culmination of everything I had done before and as good as I could do it. And then the next album, Interiors, was the beginning of something else. Mm. So I'm really proud of King's Record Shop. I also can't believe it's been 35 years. But it's another... It was another life, you know? Right, right. 
uh, four number one songs from the album. My favorite song on the album uh, was one that it wasn't released as a single. It's a great song that you wrote called The Real Me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a sweet song. I mean, that was written by a much younger version of me. <laughs> but it's sweet. I appreciate that song. Do you, do you still think of Sigourney Weaver when you bring up the album? <laughs> I love the connection there. so funny that your audience is going, what's he talking about? (laughs) I can't believe you brought that up because I was thinking about that just yesterday. (laughs) That um, I'll just briefly say what it is, is that when we were um, mixing the album, there was a giant screen above the console and we had Alien playing on a loop. (laughs) <laughs> the movie Alien playing on a loop. So, and then we would sometimes look up and just repeat, uh, you know, a bit of dialogue and then go back to the work. And so, yeah, I, in some ways, Sigourney is connected with that album. <laughs> I did tell her that once and she looked very confused. <laughs> We're talking with Roseanne Cash here on Downtown. Well, here's another blast from the past. Next year, 20 years since the release of rules of travel whoosh um that wow yeah that's crazy I, I love that album so much so many great songs on there uh many by you but but you chose wisely from other artists i love the song that craig northy wrote uh, beautiful pain i love that too and cheryl crow sang on that song uh i you know i felt a little embarrassed because i we had asked craig john and i asked craig if he would write something for me and then he wrote Beautiful Pain, and I thought, oh, my God, he thinks that, you know, I'm some kind of navel gazer who's obsessed with her own melancholy. <laughs> oh, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love your duet with Steve Earle on that, too. Man, you guys work so well together. Yeah, he and I, in some ways, he's like an annoying brother to me. He and I always get in arguments, always, always. But, you know, that song, the the way we did it together, I thought was really sweet, too. That was quite a while ago. Oh, here comes my husband. <laughs> Say hello to Rich Kimball. Morning, John. Rich Kimball. How's it going, man? <laughs> Wonderful. How are you, John? I'm excellent. He went down to get his breakfast. I went down to get my wife's breakfast is what I really did. That's that's commitment. That's what keeps a relationship going strong after all these years. That's right. Coffee and, you know, (laughs) doing errands for me. (laughs) Well, uh, while John's there, I do want to go back to ask another question about rules of travel. But while John's there, what's the secret if there is a secret? How do you keep a relationship going that's not only a personal relationship clearly, but, but a professional relationship too. Do you reach that point where you, you get tired and say, God, I I live with this guy. I have to work with him too, or vice versa, John, when she's not keeping the beat. Um, you know, uh, Rich, my wife has all the answers. (laughs) So, uh, I'll just let her talk about it. And that's, I think it pretty much sums it up. Well, I think that's the secret right there. In a microcosm, right. No, I mean, you know what? We've learned how to fight. That's what that's what the key is. We fight better. We fight a lot better. Yeah, yeah. We don't hold on to things. We at some point we always start laughing at ourselves now when we're fighting. We used to take it so seriously. You know, and also we're really, really good friends. I think that, that that's the key. 
time helps and, and perspective and, and yeah. getting a little older helps you uh, understand what's important and what's what's not such a big deal. Maybe just an annoyance that will pass. That's right. Uh, yeah. And also time becomes more precious as you're. Yeah. Some annoyances are just bigger than others, I guess. I <laughs> uh, you know it's. Uh, depends on your perspective. <laughs> no, I think what it is is that you realize after a point, you're, uh, no matter what the subject matter of the fight is, it's a fight you've had 20 million times before. <laughs> so, uh, you could number them. And then you just start to laugh. <laughs> I, I want to go back to rules of travel and, and talk, of, co- yeah. of course, about uh, September when it comes. And, and it's, it's good that John is there because I think it was John that suggested that you get your dad to record on that. Yeah, he was. Uh, You know, that song is really, John is the one who engineered it in more ways than one because I had written the lyrics and just left them on a table and kind of forgot about them in in our workspace. And he found them and he said, what is this? And I said, uh, some lyrics I wrote, and he wrote the music to it. And then he said, if there was ever a song or a time for you to do a duet with your dad, this is the song and this is the time. And it wasn't that long before my dad <clears throat> died. And, it, you know. In September, right? In September. It ended up being very prescient. Yeah. It was a, it was sweet. You know, I went down to Nashville and went to my dad's studio and he wasn't well. But he went over to the studio and sang it. And then as he was, he really got into it when he was singing it. And at the end, he said, now you take that back to John. And if he says it's not good enough, you know, I'll do it again. <laughs> I said, Dad, it's good enough. <laughs> now, do, do I remember right that he wanted to see the lyrics before he would agree to record it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to read the lyrics first. Well, you know, consummate artist. He's not going to do anything just because I'm his kid. <laughs> hey, we've made a mutual friend uh, since the last time we talked a um, couple, not long after we talked with you last time, uh, we had Van Dyke Parks coming on the show, and he's been on a mm-hmm. bunch with us, and he said, hey, you've got to talk to a, a friend of mine who's moving to Maine, and it's your friend, Joe Henry. Yeah, he he and Mel just did move to Maine, and he loves it up there. They're, it seems a little isolated for my taste, but the pictures he sent me are gorgeous. I just saw him this past summer. You know, Rodney uh, does this songwriting camp mm. and joe and i were both part of that well he's great we loved having him on the show we need to get him back on again but um by the way should we be calling you dr cash now that you uh have that uh, that degree from arkansas state you should i've got one from berkeley too so you can call me dr doctor all right i've been having this little pain in my shoulder <laughs> I, you can do anything about that I'm having a pain in my knee. Can you do anything about that? <laughs> uh, what's the status of Norma Ray? I think I saw that you uh, you did the casting and we're doing some workshopping earlier in the fall. We did. We did a five-week workshop and with full cast and choreographer. Um, you know, it was really fun and it was revealing. So we now know what changes to make. We did get um, some interest from producers and um, venues so next step you know I mean it's a long process mm. it's sometimes it takes 10 years to get something to, to stage but um, we're in it for the long haul 
it's it's really fun and interesting. In the beginning, I said, I'll never do this again. Now I say, I can't wait to do this again. Who did the book? Uh, John Weidman. Okay. A legend. Absolutely. I was watching the, uh, the great Bruce Springsteen interview with, uh, with Howard Stern, and he was talking about retirement, and he said, yeah, I just, I, I'm not going to retire, but I, I'm not going to be doing three-and-a-half-hour shows when I'm, I'm 90 years old. But he talked about his Broadway show. Would that be the kind of thing that you would ever consider doing, a, a chance to stay close to home and tell stories and, and sing your songs but, but not have to travel and yet still have that accessibility to an audience? You've been talking to my manager because he's, <laughs> he's brought that up to me a few times. Well, John and I went to see Springsteen on Broadway, and it was profoundly moving. Uh, I mean, he just does it so well. He's a, he's a, an artist at the height of his mastery. Um, after having seen that, I would feel like, such a philistine to try to do something like that myself but you know maybe in 10 years i would feel confident enough to try that how is uh, how is being a grandmother is it still everything you hoped it would be oh my god it's the best thing in the world it reinforces your optimism about everything I like the sound of that. I'll never get there because I'm I'm 64 with an eight year old son. So if I live to be <laughs> a grandfather, then then that boy's gonna have a little talking. Wait a minute, we could do a little math here. He could like find the right person at age 20. You know, oof. you could. <laughs> I got to get him through third grade first. That's that's the next step. <laughs> yeah, that's harder. Absolutely. Well, Roseanne, it's wonderful to talk with you. Uh, as always, thanks for thanks for making time for us on the road. Thank John for for jumping in as well. Thank you, John. Welcome. <laughs> it's good to talk to you, Rich. Yeah. Always a pleasure. All right. Let's not wait two years to do it again. Absolutely. Roseanne Cash with us here on Downtown. We'll pause for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we return, Will Robinson himself actor, musician, and more, Bill Moomy, next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. My mother drove a 59 pink caddy. It was an anniversary present from my daddy. song called Lockford, title cut from an album Billy Moomy recorded about three years ago. Uh, Bill has had quite a remarkable career uh, as an actor in some memorable Twilight Zone episodes as Will Robinson on Lost in Space, Lanier, and Babylon 5. Also a very accomplished musician who has played with uh, well, just about everybody in the business, including, as we learned in our conversation, 
Ringo Starr. He's got a brand new memoir out called Danger Will Robinson, The Full Mumi, the always entertaining Bill Mumi here on Downtown. Bill, welcome back. Thank you kindly. Nice to be with you guys. Uh, the book is just an absolute blast to read, and I love the uh, the nonlinear structure. It, it felt like a conversation. Thank you. I had... Um... I had resisted doing it for quite a long time or, you know, or maybe it had resisted me. I don't really know. But once I committed to um, writing in a nonlinear way, um, it just flowed really quickly. The whole book took me about 22 weeks of wow. sitting down here, which, you know, isn't when you're covering over 60 years uh, and a lot of different arenas, you know, of, of, of uh, entertainment, of showbiz. Uh, I felt like it, it, it came out pretty fast, and um, I tried to keep it conversational. I didn't want to get too, you know, flowery or, or poetic or, or weird about it. Um, and the fact that it was done modular uh, made it flow really easy for me because I would sit here at my desk for a couple of hours, and then I would go talk to my wife. Of uh, We've been married almost 40 years. And I'd tell her, well, this is what I wrote today. I wrote that story about the Twilight Zone or something. And she would say, oh, but did you tell that story about your dad and the bike? I go, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> so she would, she's been allow, around long enough to remind me of things that I might have forgotten. And uh, so it was, it was actually freeing to get this all out because now I can forget it. <laughs> <laughs> You've done so many things through the years, but it seems like music is the real through line of the story here, starting at a very early age. And, and yes, you love the acting, and that's been a big part of it, but music has always been there for you. That's very true. Um, you know, I'm sure we are all capable of, of, of chewing gum and, and, you know, walking at the same time, so to speak. And uh, yes, I started working professionally as an actor when I was a uh, just five. But then I started playing the guitar when I was just 10. And from the time I, I, I really connected with the guitar, I started writing my own songs. And I always have had uh, tape recorders. And then for the last 30, 40 years, I've, I've had a home recording studio that has evolved multiple times. So music has really been my passion. Uh, I, I make music regardless of it being a gig and uh i've released a, a lot of music but i don't sit around the house and act you know what i mean <laughs> I, and I i love to act or i loved to act the business has changed quite a bit and ever since covid kind of came around i've pretty much stayed home but um i enjoy acting very much always have but to me it's a gig you know um, I mean, I, there's nothing I'd rather do than go be Will Robinson, you know, or Anthony Fremont. I mean, I loved doing that stuff, but I don't do it around the house, whereas I'm constantly playing guitar, piano and stuff. I loved your album, uh, Lockford, that you did a couple of years ago. Oh. And, and now to hear the backstory of Lockford Street and, and what an idyllic setting that was for a young guy to grow up in. Thank you so much for uh, listening to that album, which was a look back at my very early youth. And it was idyllic. And, and I'll never uh, not appreciate that because it was a, a short pocket of time in the United States of America. And uh, it was it truly was idyllic. I lived on a cul-de-sac 
and almost every house on that little street had a, a kid, usually a boy. There was only one girl, uh, all within a year or two of my age. And we just were free and had so much fun. And people sometimes think, oh, you poor kid, you, you worked your childhood away. Nothing could be more true. You know, I, I, I worked. I had a great time working. Then I'd come home and I'd go run out with my friends. You know, or it was the weekend and we'd go do all the things kids do on the weekend. Or I, I, I really never, ever felt like I, uh, I missed out on normalcy. And you were a public school kid. I was when I, I was gone from public school. I was in and out of public school from kindergarten uh, through the fifth grade. And then I was gone from public school uh, at, and went to school at 20th Century Fox from uh for six seven and eight and then for 10th but i went back to public school for the ninth grade and then the last two years of uh, high school and that was uh that was tough you know that was weird i was never a private school guy and um didn't want to go to private school but after lost in space wrapped up and i was quite recognizable in those days got to remember there were only three networks in the in those years and uh between 30 and 40 million people watched Lost in Space every week. A new project every week with that many people watching. It was, uh, when I think about that now, it's uh, not overwhelming, but it's very impressive because because of all the different networks and, and uh, streaming and all the uh, cable things that we have access to. It's very different. Um, but when I went back to public school in the ninth grade, I was 14, which right off the bat, you know, you're a mutant at 14. You're not a man, but you're not a little kid. And the girls are all looking like women and you're still, you know, waiting for your voice to change. Um, so Will Robinson going back into the ninth grade was tough because a lot of kids uh, wanted to be my friend because I was famous. A lot of girls wanted to flirt with me because I was famous. And a lot of guys wanted to kick my ass because I was famous. And and um, I didn't want to be a fighter. I didn't want to be a wimp. And I didn't really know who to trust until I formed a rock and roll band at, in the ninth grade. And once I formed this rock and roll band um, with two people that I'm still making music with in various combinations, um, Suddenly, here I was getting attention because we were good, right? We were making a lot of loud noise. We were playing Buffalo Springfield and Birds and Doors and Jefferson Airplane and Rolling Stone songs at parties and things on the, the quad and at school and the auditorium. And that's when everything became good. You know, that's when people I know liked me because we were up there playing loud and we were in tune and, and, and that changed that experience. I want to talk about some of the people you've worked with in this uh, remarkable career. You write in the book that, that Jimmy Stewart was the single greatest guy you worked with, and, and he also gave you later on a heck of a compliment, too. He did, and I still believe he was the greatest. I mean, it's hard to make a list, but you can't top Jimmy Stewart. Uh, I had worked with a lot of impressive people before I worked with him and a lot of people after I worked with him. And most were all very positive experiences, but he just laid down the template for how to be a gentleman, how to be a great actor, how to respect and relate to everyone on the crew. And he and I played father and son for, I think it was 11 weeks. And we really spent 
all the time off camera, you know, tossing a baseball around and just talking about life and having that kind of bond. And um, he was uh, really somebody I've hoped that I would make proud in a way. Uh, And several years, I think it was like 10 years after we made this film together, Dear Bridget, uh, he was interviewed in TV Guide and his quote was, the only child actor I ever worked with who was really worth a damn was Billy Mooney. <laughs> Which, you know, I, not to take, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from all the other child actors he worked with, but that sure made me feel good. Well, yeah, I would think so. Now, you also got a chance to work with Elizabeth Montgomery, and you've given me a trivia question that now I'll be able to stump people with for the rest of my life, which is, who played the second Darren Stevens on Bewitched? And it was you. That's right, this guy. Uh, <laughs> out of all the, 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 the programs that I've done and all of the heavy dramatic roles or the light comedy roles, I did two episodes of the original Bewitched series, the first and second season, the Christmas show, and then an episode in the second season called uh, a Junior Executive, where um, Andorra Agnes Moorhead, the great Agnes Moorhead, turns Darren into a kid, which was me. Well, I have to tell you, Bewitched was like one of my very, very favorite and regular television shows that I watched passionately as a, as a viewer at home. And um, when I did the Christmas show at the end of the first season, I fell in love with Elizabeth Montgomery. I mean, who wouldn't, right? right? We all did. <laughs> uh, so, so magical. <laughs> I know that's kind of, uh, <laughs> but she's just, just an outstanding lady and, and just, she just shined and I, I fell in love with her. She taught me the nose thing and she was just terrific to work with. So when the opportunity came up to, to play her husband, to play Darren as a child, um, man, that was one of my all time favorite gigs. And I watched it not too long ago and I was, I was like going, wow, Mooney, you really caught Dick York's kind of, actions there I, I i i did a good job in that show but the best part was like you know being her husband driving the car getting a kiss from your wife and you know shaving and stuff uh, that remains a really uh, top fave of mine and she was just great we've talked with you before about uh, twilight zone certainly and, and and it's a good life uh but you did i think for my money the three episodes you did of, of twilight zone stand among the best in the series history, a long distance call was was so powerful. And then, man, in praise of Pip, Jack Klugman was always great in in everything he did. But the scenes with you two together were something special. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm grateful I had those opportunities to work on the Twilight Zone. I still think that's the best anthology television series that ever has been made. And Rod Serling was such a singular talent. Um, and I'm grateful that obviously he. Uh, he liked my work because he had me back three times. And yeah, those shows hold up really well. And they are they are creepy and they are dramatic and uh, they have wonderful casts. You know, Cloris Leachman and John Larch. And, uh, of course, um, it, it, they're all good. And, and it was a it was an honor to be a part of that show. And, and how great was it to get a chance to partner with Cloris again for the fourth time as your mom, uh, but also to play the, the grown-up 
Anthony Fremont and have your daughter at Liliana be a part of it later on. Again, that was probably the uh, shining <laughs> jewel in my showbiz tiara in a way, because if I'd never done anything beyond that, if that was the final thing I did to put a button on it, to go back to a show that it was really deemed classic by not myself, but you know, generations of television people that said, okay, it's a good life. It's, that's one of the, the greatest television shows, whether I had anything to do with that, which I guess I did, but you know, it's quite a compliment. So when Ira Bear, the executive producer of the revisited Twilight Zone series, uh, came to me, he's a friend of mine, um, you know, he didn't want to accept that gig because he knew how special and perfect the original Twilight Zone was. And I said to him, Ira, you really need to do this because you can protect it. And he agreed. Um, and he started the gig and he, he had some network hassles. They actually, they actually told him they wanted this version of the Twilight Zone to have a hip hop mentality. So he was kind of up against the wall right from the beginning. And, and a couple of weeks went in, he got a few shows in the can. And I said to him, we were just hanging out. Our kids are really good friends. And I, I said, wonder what Anthony Fremont would be up to 40 years later. And that was it. We just tossed that out. We didn't talk about it more than that. And then he called a week later. He said, they want to do it. I said, who wants to do what? He said, the network wants to do a sequel to It's a Good Life, and they want to do it right away. And I was like, what? <laughs> Are you seriously? And uh, I wasn't sure if that was a good idea or not. But then Ira gave me his, his initial notes to read, which uh, included Liliana, my daughter, as uh, Audrey Fremont. Uh, and I thought, well, if we could really do this, um, because she had been working quite a bit at that point in time. She'd been doing the, uh, the Disney, the Santa Claus films with Tim Allen. She did two of those and the cheaper by the dozen Fox features. And she was a hot little child actress. And uh, so the, the thought of doing that with her was great. But what was even better uh, was when Iris said, and I'm pretty sure I can get Cloris. And any actor who works with Cloris, who worked with Cloris Leachman, will know what I mean when I say uh, she bumped your game up. She really did. Because Cloris was such a powerful force um, of just energy that she would never accept anything less than the very best you could give her if you were working with her. Now, that doesn't mean you, you, you could rise to the level of her necessarily, but she made sure you got as high as you could go. She brought you up to a place as an actor uh, where she was fencing with you, so to speak, and uh, you had to hold your own. Well, and and I, you, I, you share the story in the book, too, that when, when you were a young, very young actor working with her and you weren't perhaps... Uh, focusing as much as you could off camera that she very gently explained to you how a professional works on a set. I learned a lot from Cloris because I, again, we did work together four times and uh, two, two of those initial times were within about a year of each other. And they were the first or a few of the very first uh, leading roles that I ever had. So it's one thing to go on a show and work for two days or one day. It's another thing to, to carry an episode of television. And uh, a couple of those shows that I did with Cloris, actually three of them when I was pretty young, uh, I carried and uh, with her. And she taught me a lot as a, as a young actor 
as a young professional actor. She taught me a lot, and uh, I never forgot any of it. We're talking with Bill Moomy here on Downtown. Uh, Lost in Space, we've talked about it with you before, uh, an iconic series, but but we learn in the book, too, that, that it really was, uh, it was a family and a group of people that you have stayed close to for now going on 50-plus years. Yep, it's still one big dysfunctional family. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I speak to, uh, to Angela and uh, Marta and Mark quite often, uh, like, multiple times a week. Um, and I, I speak to June Lockhart, you know, when I can on her birthday, she's 96 now, brilliant, wonderful woman. And, um, but you know, she doesn't hang out. We don't go to the whiskey a go, go together anymore, but we did. Um, <laughs> and, and we all get along really well. I mean, we've become, we really are like a family. There's a, there's a bond of love there. And, and th- when the show ended, there was uh, at least a decade or more where, with the exception of Angela and I, we were disconnected from everybody. Everybody went on to do their other projects and, you know, just kind of became just a Christmas card thing once a year. But then once, um, I guess you would call them personal appearances where the, the cast would be asked to come together to promote something or do something, uh, then we just fell back into that that mode of working and, and, and hanging out. And uh, it's continued like that for a good 35, 40 years now. You did such great work on, on Babylon 5, but as you point out in the book, that also uh, brings back some some tough memories and emotions because a stunning number of people from that cast have left us way too soon. Yeah, I, I honestly can't think of another show in, in television history that has lost that many core cast members at a pretty early age. I mean, we've lost like eight or nine of the main cast members from Babylon five. You know, you never know what you're, you never know what you're going to get when you accept the opportunity to be a part of a television series. And, you know, Babylon five, I didn't necessarily think that was going to be a five year gig for me. And the process of becoming the alien Lanier every episode with all that makeup glued to my face and stuff was a real challenge. I loved the character and I loved the, the, the cast. We got along very well. It's different than, say, Lost in Space because I worked on Lost in Space from the age of 10 to 14. And those are, you know, those years, you're just an open book and you absorb everybody and and it, 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 uh, Babylon 5, we're close. We were close, but it's it was different. But the, the uh, makeup process to, of becoming that character and unbecoming that character, <laughs> taking that makeup off at the end of the day was really um, a challenge. And uh, I'm glad I, I was there for all five seasons. I never thought it would go five seasons. Um, but we have lost so many uh, people that um, it is bittersweet. I don't really watch the reruns of it. I know it's it's still running, and um, but I I don't really tend to to look at those shows. It did too many comrades gone. We had uh, one of your great friends on the show about a year or so ago, uh, Steve Lukather, and he told us a little bit about those classic Christmas Eve gatherings at Rosemary Clooney's house uh, with your friend Miguel Ferrer, and then you write about it in the book. It just sounds like a magical time. 
Oh, I, first of all, I, I, I talked to, to Luke twice today already. I have a very small boys group text thing going. And Luke is certainly the uh, <laughs> the wild one on that, that little group. We did speak together twice today, quite recently before this call. Um, I spent with Eileen and then our children uh, at least 20 Christmas Eves at Rosemary Clooney's home in Beverly Hills. And uh, Rosemary was a great friend of mine. I'm honored that she recorded three of my songs. Uh, I can't say enough about what a strong, humble, talented, loving, generous, uh, down-to-earth person she was. And those Christmas Eves were the best Christmas Eves. And um, I miss Rosie. I miss Miguel. And... uh, I'll hold on to the thought that we'll all see each other again in another dimension. Your music is, is taking you to some incredible places. Uh, you write about your work uh, with uh, Dewey Bunnell, Jerry Beckley, the guys in America, uh, your long association with the guys you were in in Redwood. And then, I guess, through Luke, ended up what had to be a surreal experience for any musician playing with Ringo Starr's all-star band. Yeah, I'll, I'll owe him for that one forever. That was just, that was the pinnacle of uh, groove ball factor. <laughs> you know, um, I have been blessed to work with and write with and record with and perform with a lot of iconic people in the last 50 years. And, uh, but when you're, when you're invited to be a part of a Beatles live gig, Right. It's it it is a different level of like fab. And Luke called me up on the phone. He goes, Mumi, what are you doing Saturday night? And I said, "Uh, nothing. And he goes, "Okay, well, you're playing the Greek theater with Ringo and the guys. I said, what? He goes, yeah, you're approved, man. We were talking about it on the phone and uh, the guys want you to do it. And Ringo said, yeah, sure. That'd be great. He said, so we're doing with a little help from my friends and give peace a chance. We're doing them in the original keys. Learn them. You can play my 12 string and you can share my mic and I'll set you all up. I'll get you see you there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And uh, now I had known quite a few people who had worked with Ringo over the the years. Uh, Some of them as as producers who had worked with Ringo as voiceover narrator guy, some who had been in his previous bands, and some people who had worked in the recording studios with him. So I thought, and and my wife Eileen had seen the Beatles live when she was a a lot younger. (laughs) And uh, we, my wife and I prepared like, what are we going to say when we meet Ringo? And I had it figured out, right? I said, okay, I'm going to say this. Eileen said, well, I'm going to tell her about when they came to Michigan and blah, blah, blah. And I sat next to, you know, Henry Ford's grandson or something. Um, So we go to the Greek theater. We go to the gig. The security is magnificent. And we go to the main dressing room and I hang out with Todd Rundgren and all the guys in the band and their ladies. And we exchange pleasantries. And I had known a few of them and that was all nice. And then Luke comes in and he goes, come on, I want you to meet the boss. And he takes us into Ringo's private dressing room. And there's Ringo and Barbara Bach. And, you know, it's not crowded, but people are coming in. And uh, <laughs> Luke goes, hey, hey, boss, this is uh, this is Bill Noomi and his wife, Eileen. And Ringo goes, uh, 
Russo, you, you, I understand you're going to be joining us on stage tonight. And I go, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. He goes, uh, do you know the song? I go, yeah, Ringo, everybody knows this song. Yes, I do. Well, do you know the words? I go, yeah, yeah, I know, I, I know the words. He goes, ah, but do you know the chords? And I go, I do. I know the chords. And he just goes, you'll do. And then we take a couple of, we take a couple of pictures. And then he's looking at me and Eileen like, okay, well, yeah. And everything that I had prepared to say to him, it was just like my character in Dear Bridget when he meets Bridget Bardot and all he can do is like, oh, right. <laughs> Everything I had prepared to say to Ringo went straight to the cornfield. And I was I was just numbed in the presence of fab. And uh, all I can say, though, that, you know, during the set, I'm brought backstage. I'm handed the guitar. He was playing. All you got to do is act naturally. And then I come on and Ringo goes. Oh, look who's here. It's Billy Moomy. <laughs> and he laughs. And the Greek theater goes nuts. And we played the songs. And thankfully, I had, you know, watched several of the recent YouTubes of the band. So I knew their little kicks and the little places where they were doing little accents and stuff. I studied. I did my homework. It all went without a hitch. And it was one of the highlights of my life. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> hey, I know it's been a big week uh, around the Moomy household here. Uh, a couple of birthdays. Uh, your granddaughter, Isla, uh, turned yeah. two a couple days ago. And uh, the Peach, Presley Jane, shares a birthday with my wife, Abby. She'll be turning four on Saturday. Wow, you have really done your homework. I am impressed. <laughs> I mean, I'm really impressed. Um, yeah, boy, it's good to be two. It's, oh, and it's yeah. good to be it's good to be four. And uh, I'm so grateful that my son and daughter-in-law and my two granddaughters live literally five minutes away. I mean, you could walk if you had to. I mean, we're up in the hills, so it's a lot of up and down. But they literally live five minutes away. So we see them almost every day. And uh, it's just such a blessing. And you see these unspoiled, beautiful little souls. And they light up when they see me. You know, they call me Puh. <laughs> And they just come running and they, oh, boy, that's the best. That I mean, you know, that's the best. And by the time they're 13, you know, I, I will probably be hiding on a Valium drip somewhere. But for now, <laughs> everything is great. <laughs> so I have to think, based on the, what I read the book, that we might not even be having this conversation. And there certainly wouldn't be this wonderful book were it not for Eileen. Oh, Eileen is is responsible for most all the good things in my life. I, I, yes, I'm very grateful to my wife in every way a man can be grateful for. And we've uh, been together. We've been married 37 years. We've been uh, together for 40 years. Uh, you know, we've had our ups and downs. I think every marriage gets tested along the way. And, you know, I didn't sugarcoat stuff in the book. I, I, I talked about some of the drama that uh, families go through and marriages go through. And I'm just grateful that we're happy and healthy and together. And, you know, it's good. It's real good. So for a self-professed worry wart, uh, what did writing the book, what did exploring your past do for you? Well, that's, this is interesting because I found, found, I found that, you know, the, our brains really maintain all of these weird tidbits of ancient info 
And something, sometimes it can be a photograph that you've never seen before. Sometimes it can be uh, reading a card that you found in a box or something. It'll open those files. And I, I didn't really have great problems getting my memory together to write these things. But uh, when it stopped flowing, I had a stack of my late mother's journals and uh, that helped with some really interesting information um, regarding, there's a lot of details in my book regarding, say, I worked on uh, National Velvet at MGM in 1960 for three days and I was paid whatever it was, $500, right? But I would never have known that stuff. The information of the details of this is, I, this, this is what lot we worked, we shot that at, how many days we shot it at, and what I was paid to do it. And my mom kept all that stuff. So seeing her handwriting and seeing just those little notes would open up those files in your brain that had been really tucked away. I mean, it's not that they they weren't accessible, but how would I know how to assess what I did in 1960 for four days? But reading her journals popped open a lot of those files. And having written them and gotten it down and and to a point where it's like, okay, it can be published, right? Um, now those memories, and I say this honestly, are retreating again. Hmm. I have one I have one copy of the book, and I have been doing you know promotion here to 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 bring it to the attention of the public. And I open the book and I go, oh, I forgot that I said, oh, I forgot that. And that, it's it's once I wrote it, it tended to go back into those files that aren't as easy to open anymore. It's very interesting the way that works. I'm glad I got it out while I could. Well, there's so many it is true. It, it, it is definitely true. I don't think there's anything in the book that isn't really right. So many in good terms stories. Of accurate, uh, sorry. The, the stories from shooting Papillon are worth <laughs> the price of the book themselves. The, uh, the Dustin, I like the Dustin Hoffman whoopee cushion story, but I love the story of Steve McQueen taking you aside, but I want people to read the book. So I'm not going to give that spoiler away. Um, The story about Alfred Hitchcock and uh, a difficult experience working with him, but also some fascinating information uh, about your family, your your mom and dad that really uh, getting together kind of started a new life for them. And and the history there was it your, your mom's um, father or mother who was uh, an agent who represented Boris Karloff. Yeah. My grandfather, Harry Gould, uh, was an agent in the 30s, late 20s and 30s, uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. God love her. My wife, Eileen, was going through uh, one of my mom's purses or something that we, we, you know, when your parents pass away, and my mom's been gone 11 years, it's hard to throw all that stuff out. And it, it, it is for me. I have storage spaces and a lot of that stuff was just, you know, pushed in there. Anyway, Eileen was going through one, a wallet of my, my mom's not long ago after the book was, was done and found my grandfather's business card with the address and everything on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, here, you know, right on the famous strip near, near Musso Frank's restaurant. And my son, Seth, uh, was I, I showed him the card. He went and took a picture of the building and it's like, oh, I know that. So that's where my my grandfather, Harry, in the 30s, had, he, he mostly represented um, directors and writers, but he represented a handful of actors. Boris Karloff was the one that we all remember, 
My grandfather got him the audition for um, Frankenstein and then negotiated his contract for, for that project. And from what I was always told, um, that Boris Karloff was driving a truck back and forth from San Francisco to Los Angeles at those at that time. And uh, and Harry said, well, get get your butt down here. because I got a good audition for you. And he almost missed it, but it worked out. Well, read all about it in this a terrific new book, Danger Will Robinson, The Full Moomy, a memoir. You can uh, get it at the website, BillMoomy.com. It's just a wonderful read. And, and it seems like you've, you've figured some things out. Uh, you've been appreciative of the opportunities you have. Uh, you you put it all in great perspective here, and it's a wonderful read, not just about the show business, but about life. So uh, it's great to read it and great to talk with you about it, Bill. Well, thank you so much. And and, and thanks to the publishers, Mary McLaren at Next Chapter. Uh, they really encouraged me uh, to do this. Uh, about a year and a half ago, Angela Cartwright and I had, had done a project called Lost and Found in Space, Blast Off, which was our mem memo memoirs and photographs from our years together on Lost in Space. And that did quite well. And uh, Mary and her husband, Tom, at Next Chapter really said, you know, Bill, people would love it if you wrote the book. And I found myself pretty much, uh, you know, at home because of the global conditions with, with stuff. I, I didn't, I haven't been going out. I haven't been gigging much. I've been making a lot of music, but I haven't been really socializing. So I found this opportunity of time and I said, well, let's see what happens. And uh, it happened. Well, we're glad it did. Glad to talk with you once again. Thanks for being with us, Bill. Happy birthday to the Peach. Happy holidays uh -huh. to all the Moomies. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again down the road. Thank you so much. And happy holidays to you guys. And I really appreciate uh, this opportunity today. Thank you. That's Bill Moomy. Man, uh, every time we talk to him, we learn we learn more, which is, I guess, what you you hope to do in an interview, but he is, boy, Kerry, he is such an interesting guy. And we didn't even get into to some of the stuff uh, that, that's in the book. Uh, I know you're a big comic book guy. Mm. So is he, and he actually uh, teamed up to write a number of comic books. Yeah, I knew that he had done a few things, especially, I think, one of the first projects he worked on was a, 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 a continuation or stories based in the Lost in Space universe. Mm. But uh, yeah, he, he went beyond that as well. Quite a guy and a really fun read, his memoir, Autobiography, The Full Mummy. Our thanks to Bill, thanks to the great Roseanne Cash, and thanks to you for visiting with us this week. We'll see you next time here on Downtown. Downtown.